Today is July 21st, 2020, and this is episode number 17 of Blurred Laws and Life with me, your host, Richard Bush. Before we get to episode number 17, I must thank Brian Tyler for a wonderful, incredible, terrific episode number 16 of Blurred Laws in Life. The discussion we had with Brian about his work on movies, including the Fast and Furious movies, including that final scene involving Paul Walker after his death, the music that was chosen for that, the music that was chosen for Crazy Rich Asians, and just the entire education he gave us on how music is used in movies, the process of developing it for movies and television uh, was just fascinating. Of course, Brian also being the genius he is with a master's degree in philosophy from Harvard, where he also studied physics and quantum physics, our discussion of alternate realities, that there are trillions of realities based on the work of Stephen Hawking and many other great quantum physicists, whether we're living in a simulation, whether we all have gamers who are controlling us and our lives depend on how good they are. Um, That was so much fun. And I hope everyone enjoyed that discussion. I myself have listened to it several times and and, uh, I really hope to have Brian back because I could have kept speaking to him for literally hours more. Now, uh, turning to episode number 17 of Blurred Laws in Life, I had many things on my mind that I wanted to discuss, but I thought I would start with something that is in the news and will be in the news for sure in the coming months leading up to the presidential election. Every election season, every campaign season, we hear music being played at campaign events, and depending upon the candidate and whether the artist um, involved is a Republican or Democrat or supports the particular candidate, we hear artists complaining about and threatening different candidates with lawsuits if they play music at campaign events without permission. So I thought that since that would be in the news and has been in the news, I believe the estate of Tom Petty very publicly complained about Donald Trump playing uh, his music at campaign events. And we hear about this all the time. I thought you all might be interested in hearing about the licenses that are required to play music at campaign events and um, the legal issues that are involved. As we've discussed previously on Blurred Laws in Life, there are several different types of licenses that are required to perform music, to distribute music, to reproduce music. In the industry, 
there are certain names for these licenses. There is what is called a public performance license. There is what is called a mechanical license, which gives the distributor the right to reproduce and manufacture the music. And there is what is called a synchronization license, which is a license to combine music with visual images in video. There are two different copyrights in every song. The actual musical composition and the sound recording. The sound recording being the recorded performance of the musical composition. The musical composition is generally owned by music publishers and songwriters, while the sound recording is owned by record labels generally and historically. If someone wants to license the use of the song, both the sound recording and the musical composition, they need licenses from both the owner of the sound recording and the owner of the musical composition. The different licenses that are required for use of the musical composition depends upon the use of it. As we talked about previously on Blurred Laws in Life, there are different types of licenses that authorize the use of a musical composition. BMI and ASCAP are public performance organizations and songwriters and publishers register with BMI or ASCAP and then BMI or ASCAP issues blanket licenses to broadcasters, to venues like football stadiums, hotels, arenas, restaurants, for so that those broadcast networks and venues can perform the musical compositions that are controlled by BMI or ASCAP. The public performance license, however, sometimes is not enough, even for performances at venues. For example, licenses for venues, such as convention centers and hotels, generally exclude rights to perform music at events organized by a third party, such as political campaigns. Political campaigns need their own ASCAP license or BMI license to use the work in the BMI or ASCAP repertoire. In addition, if the performance at a venue shows up on television or is recorded on video to be played on the internet, then what is called a synchronization license is also required. And a synchronization license is the combination of music with video. And that license needs to be obtained directly from the songwriter or musical publisher or their administrator who controls the right to license those musical compositions. And if the sound recording is also being used, it's not just a band, for example, playing a song, but the actual sound recording is being played, then a license from the sound recording owner is also necessary. The other type of license that is required to use a musical composition for reproduction and distribution is a mechanical license, 
but that is not really applicable when it comes to campaign events, which we are talking about now. The mechanical license is required of an interactive streaming company who's reproducing and distributing musical compositions or manufacturers and distributors of songs, either record labels or permanent download companies, things of that nature. But when it comes to political events, such as campaign events, where music is being played, therefore the campaign cannot rely simply on a BMI or ASCAP license that the hotel or venue or convention center may have. The campaign must obtain directly from ASCAP or BMI a public performance license. And if the campaign event is going to be videotaped and played on television or on the internet, then a synchronization license directly from the publisher or songwriter or administrator is also required. And as I mentioned, if the recording, the sound recording is being used, then a license from the owner of the sound recording will also be required. So when it comes to the complaints by the Tom Petty estate, they probably have valid grounds to not only object to the playing of Tom Petty's music at President Trump's campaign events or whomever they object to playing that music, unless the Trump campaign has obtained directly from BMI or ASCAP a public performance license, since the public performance license to the venue will not generally cover um, third-party events like a campaign rally, they would also need to obtain directly from Tom Petty's publisher or administrator, the estate's publisher or administrator, a synchronization license, and they would also need to obtain a sound recording license from the owner of the sound recording of the Tom Petty song that they wanted to play. You hear about this frequently during campaign season, and I hope this will help you understand the different issues involved and the licenses that are required um, when you hear music at campaign events. The reason that artists sometimes complain about the use by certain politicians of their music is because of the power that music brings to those campaigns. Music has literally been part of uh, campaigns dating back to George Washington, believe it or not. And it's effective. And by playing a specific artist's music, because licenses are required from the artist, as I've just discussed a moment ago, it implies that the artist is supportive of the views of a particular uh, candidate for office. And if the artist is fearful that his or her fans will mistakenly believe that the artist supports a particular candidate's views, it is important that they speak up and make it clear that they do not license their music for that use. If a campaign uses music without obtaining a specific license, there are various causes of action that are potentially available to the songwriter. A campaign could be subject to claims based on the artist's right of publicity, which in many states provides image protection 
for songwriters and famous people. The Lanham Act covers confusion or dilution of a trademark, such as a band or artist name, through unauthorized use. And there are claims for false endorsement, where use of the artist's identifying work implies that the artist supports a product or candidate, as I mentioned a moment ago. And of course, there are claims for copyright infringement. While generally speaking, state law claims can be preempted by the Copyright Act, those types of claims for right of publicity or false endorsement may not be because they involve different elements besides just the unauthorized copying of music. So if a candidate not only uses specific music without a license, but then ignores demands from the songwriter to cease and desist, they could be exposing themselves to significant liability. Artists also have the right to, or songwriters I should say, also have the right to ask ASCAP or BMI to exclude from the blanket license certain songs or their entire song catalog for use by third parties and specific third parties. So just because a political campaign may obtain a BMI license or an ASCAP license does not mean that will give them the right to use all of the music that is licensed by ASCAP or BMI. BMI or ASCAP will um, specifically advise those attempting to obtain a license of music excluded from the blanket license. week was the firing of Nick Cannon from Viacom for certain anti-Semitic remarks that he made. So I thought that on this week's episode of Blurred Laws in Life, it might be interesting to discuss morals, clauses, and contracts, and the First Amendment. A morals clause prohibits an artist from engaging in conduct and speech that will bring either the artist or the other party to the contract, generally a studio, production company, or network, into public disrepute, scandal, embarrassment, or generally cast a bad light on the company's reputation. In sports contracts, that generally takes the form of language that allows the a professional sports team to discipline someone tied to the organization for conduct detrimental to the team. So the question becomes legally how those contracts can be reconciled with the First Amendment. Many people who are not familiar with the law in the First Amendment might think that such a morals clause or language that restricts speech in a contract might itself violate the First Amendment. But the First Amendment does not prevent 
parties from contracting to regulate speech by those in which they are in a contract. It also does not restrict or prevent employers from terminating employees who are at-will employees for exercising their First Amendment rights of speech if the employer is not happy with that speech. The First Amendment, generally speaking, prevents the government or public institutions from taking action based upon a citizen's exercise of First Amendment rights. The First Amendment, however, and the right of free speech is not without its limits. For example, it has long been the law that speech that is likely to incite imminent lawless action, such as a riot, is not protected by the First Amendment. That has been the law since Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes stated that falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic would not be protected by the First Amendment. Threats of violence are also not protected by the First Amendment. This includes all threats, racist threats, threats to police officers, threats to business owners, threats to the president, anyone. Personal insults said to someone's face might also be punishable as so-called fighting words. Hate crime laws are also constitutional, so long as they punish violence or vandalism, not speech. And the classic case uh, was from a Supreme Court case, Wisconsin versus Mitchell, in which a young African-American man told friends to beat up a white kid because he was white. And the court said that that law that punished that hate crime was constitutional because a physical assault is not by any stretch of the imagination expressive conduct protected by the First Amendment. So the question becomes, is hate speech, such as the anti-Semitic comments that have been made over the last week or two by Ice Cube and Deshaun Jackson and Nick Cannon and others protected by the First Amendment? And the answer is yes, they are. Now that will not prevent Viacom from terminating Nick Cannon or the Philadelphia Eagles from disciplining Deshaun Jackson, but those comments are protected by the First Amendment and they are not unlawful. And the reason being, the simple reason for hate crimes being unlawful or threats being unprotected by the First Amendment, while hateful speech being protected by the First Amendment, it is because it is a slippery slope, essentially, that if this country starts deciding what speech is hateful, what speech is hate speech, it would become a slippery slope in which we would be punishing debate and dissent. And as the Supreme Court stated, 
the freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment must be accorded to the ideas we hate, or sooner or later they will be denied to the ideas we cherish. As the philosopher Voltaire said long ago, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And while I obviously disapprove of the comments that I've heard over the past week or so from people like Nick Cannon, Deshaun Jackson, and Ice Cube, and as painful as those are, we have to defend to the death the right of them to say it and for those who oppose it to explain why. And I would invite everyone to read the article written by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in The Hollywood Reporter responding to Nick Cannon and Ice Cube and others who have made anti-Semitic remarks in the past couple of weeks in which he explains quite eloquently how Hate speech by one emboldens all and becomes a vicious circle in which it becomes okay and, in fact, promotes discrimination and hate against all. As a postscript to this discussion, I feel compelled to address these anti-Semitic comments that have been made over the past week. As I mentioned Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did an eloquent job of discussing the cycle that results from any group perpetuating stereotypical comments about another and expressing hateful comments engaging in hate speech, particularly when people who are expressing those views themselves come from a group that is historically discriminated against. It emboldens those who thrive off of hate and creates a vicious cycle of hate. In response to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's essay in The Hollywood Reporter, Ice Cube responded by stating that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had sold out for 50 pieces of silver. And for those of you who do not know, that comment, 50 pieces of silver, comes from the New Testament where Judas is said to have sold out Jesus for 50 pieces of silver. That itself is the basis for the stereotypical notion that Jews will do anything for money. And it began this stereotype that exists to this very day. In fact, anti-Semitism actually dates further back than that to the days of the ancient Greeks and to, of course, the Egyptians because the Jews would not pray to the idols that were the gods of the Greeks and the Egyptians. But these stereotypes exist to this very day and is self-defeating. There is no point to it other than assisting those who hate others for no reason other than the color of their skin or their religion. 
I want to conclude today's podcast in light of this discussion by saying how mad I now am at my mother. Why am I mad at my mother? Because when I was 14 years old, I had no money and I got my first job. And my first job was as a dishwasher at a restaurant in Miami known as Sambo's. Yes, Sambo's, totally and politically incorrect, would never fly today. But yes, the name of the restaurant was Sambo's and it was just like a Denny's. And on one of my first days of work, the manager came to the back where I was washing dishes and said, Richard, I have a special job for you. And he took me to the back where there was a big garbage dumpster sitting on this huge block of cement. And apparently whenever the trash was taken out, grease was spilling out and little round grease stains formed on the cement, probably maybe a hundred on the cement um, on which the garbage dumpster sat. And he handed me a spatula. Now it's the middle of summer in Miami and um, hundred degrees. And he handed me a spatula and said, I need you to take that spatula and scrape off all of the grease stains off of the cement. And I looked at him like he was crazy. And I said, are you joking? And he said, no, I need this done. Here's the spatula, get to it. And I got on my knees and I started scraping off the grease stains while sweating my ass off, 100 degrees, boiling sun in Miami in the middle of summer, thinking to myself, this effing sucks. This can't be what my life is going to be like. And as I sat there doing it, thinking this sucks, I thought to myself, if only we had money, if only I didn't have to do this. So now I've read, I've been enlightened by Richard Griffin, known as Professor Griff from Public Enemy and Ice Cube and Nick Cannon and others that in fact, Jewish people are all rich and they all have a lot of money and they control all of the money in the world supposedly. So I'm really, really mad at my mother for not telling me. Now my poor mom has Alzheimer's, so I cannot confront her about this, but if she was in her right mind and if she was healthy, I would go down to Miami and I would confront her about why she made me take this job at Sambo's at 14 years old, scraping grease stains off of cement in the middle of summer when we in fact were rich, according to Richard Griffin, Ice Cube, and Nick Cannon. Why would my mother lie to me about that? Why would she not tell me? So either she withheld this very important information from me, or these stereotypes, and all stereotypes, are just simply false and dangerous. I hope you've enjoyed this episode number 17 of Blurred Laws and Life. 
and I will speak to you next week. 